I think there are very clear concerns we definitely have to address. We have addressed and we will continue to address with the MCU. But I think it's also very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction to the state of comic book movies in general just over the Marvels. To me, I mean, we could write a book about this, honestly, but it's really, it proves the abject failure of their streaming strategy. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. And I'm joined here for a, kind of an all box office pro episode here today. We don't have a, a feature interview this time around, but I guess our feature is going to be a discussion of Captain Marvel, of the future of the MCU, and just a discussion of a lot of news that's been going on over this past week. There's a lot to get over. There's a lot to analyze. There are a lot of exciting things happening in the industry and, and a lot of things that are still up in the air. So it is, after all, earnings call week for a lot of publicly traded companies, specifically here. Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney have had earnings calls with investors over the past week or so. So a lot of new information floating around out there, some of it more related to the general cinema industry as a whole, the production side of things, others specifically some schedule changes from Disney, more in tune with the specifically the theatrical side, uh, the business, this calendar. So to parse all the uh, all the information that's been flying around over this past week. We have from Box Office Pro Chief Analyst Sean Robbins, and then from Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters, Russ Fisher, our strike whisperer. Russ, to start, the strike is over, dot, 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 question mark. What are we looking at with regard to the SAG-AFTRA Ampus deal? Yeah, so SAG-AFTRA and Ampus reached a tentative deal last week on Wednesday evening. So just before our last episode was released, that deal has been voted on by the primary board of SAG-AFTRA, which voted 86% in favor of ratifying the deal. Now it goes out to general membership. That voting by general membership begins tomorrow, Tuesday, November 14th. There are a lot of meetings happening now between the union leadership and some of the you know, captains and heads of departments and things like that. And there's still some questions about this deal. By and large, it seems like a good deal, although I think that 86% ratification by the board might tell you that it is not as unanimously seen as a good deal in the way yeah. that the WGA deal was. The two big question mark points are two of the big points that were sticking points throughout the negotiation, which are AI and the use of uh, digital doubles and the way that those assets can be created, the way that they can be used, the freedom with which companies can exploit them, and the compensation, if any, given to both primary performers and also background performers. And then there is also the question of streaming residuals, where, you know, it seems like on the residuals question, I don't think it's quite as good as what anybody wanted, but it also seems like it might be the best possible compromise right now. And, you know, you have to wonder if the SAG leadership is really looking at the question of getting everybody back to work versus 
can we hold out for you know a half a percent more or something like that? But the AI question remains a really big deal. And- I mean, Timothy Chalamet, I know, was uh, was back on SNL last night. Are people allowed to promote films now, Absolutely. kind of in an interim period? Okay, so well, I we, mean, we- SAG declared the strike over last Wednesday okay. night at midnight. I think. So even though all the like the you still got some some eyes to dot and some T's to cross from the perspective of the element of marketing and production that most affects the specifically the cinema industry. That's Correct. back to normal. Well, it's back on right now. I think the big question would be what will happen if rank and file membership does not vote to ratify the contract. And honestly, I don't know if that's a situation that has any real precedent in Hollywood. Conceivably, if they don't ratify, then You know, everybody's got to go back to the table and the strike goes back on. But even with some of the big sticking points, it seems like the chances of failure to ratify are pretty low. But, you know, you've got things like over the last few days, Jeffrey Katzenberg talked about the idea that within a decade, 90% of the traditional feature animation workflow could be replaced by AI. Which is a massively nebulous statement that is difficult to quantify or qualify. scary and horrifying, and we'll be talking about the evolution of animation in a few minutes. Absolutely. The point is simply that the AI is a huge question. AI is going to remain a big deal. And if SAG can't convince the membership that they're protected within the AI question, then yeah, we could see some interesting developments. So, Sean, it's over with the question mark. There's still uncertainty there. And even if it is likely that will be ratified by the entire SAG-AFTRA membership, I mean, are things moving at this point? Is the schedule going to change at all? How are the studios are going to react in terms of ramping up marketing and putting productions back into operation when the strike might be back on at some point fairly soon. How do you see the decision-making happening from their perspective? I mean, so far it looks like everybody is moving forward as if business is normal, assuming that, I mean, there will be no more complications. I think the challenge is that this is happening right as we go into holiday season, which is typically when productions would close down unless there was something that just needed to go through the holidays. That's not entirely going to be the case this time. We already know a few high-profile films like Venom, the next Deadpool, a few others have been officially confirmed that they're going to ramp up production as quickly as possible. But right. You know that if Ridley Scott needs to work over Thanksgiving, he'll work over Thanksgiving. And you know what? All these people have been out of work for so long that, you know, maybe a lot of people really won't mind. I mean, but I think at the end of the day, exactly what you said is we have to look at the entire infrastructure of all of this set construction, caterers. There are so many businesses involved with film production that got lost in the shuffle of the media covering the strikes and the actors and writers. It's so many other thousands of people that these studios have to get in line over the next few months. So they're going to market what they can market right now, which are going to be their upcoming releases, things that need to be immediately out in the public and just prioritize from there. But this is going to take months. I mean, we're going to go well into the new year still watching the studios get their ducks in a row to recover from these strikes. And it's going to be a very full November in terms of the calendar. I mean, this next coming weekend, which which we'll discuss, we have four films, I think, coming out in wide release. Does the schedule change? Where would studios change release dates to at this point? It feels like right now, what you got is what you got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a few spots. The big question now, I think, is who takes that first weekend in May now that Deadpool has left it behind? Does something like Dune or maybe Ghostbusters go there or does maybe a a summer release like A Quiet Place that doesn't need intensive post-production work 
Does it have time to move up? Who knows? I mean, maybe maybe studios just leave that weekend alone. It's kind of a guessing game, but I think there are little windows like that here and there next year. But really, everybody's going to kind of wait and see what the big boys do. And then once we get a you know a firm idea of how the tent poles are lining up, then everybody else can move their dominoes for their smaller releases. I know a movie that could be set for that key May weekend. Yeah, I was going to say, there's something that doesn't uh, have a release date <laughs> now. Okay, oh my God, I know this when this hit, it really frustrated a lot of people, justifiably. It's infuriating. Warner Brothers has shelved Coyote versus Acme, which was done, almost done, done, done. Done, done. Scored, edited, cut, and this is finished, done. To get a tax break, this is bizarre to me that they made the decision to do this. Like It's co-written by James Gunn, right? And stars John Cena, two people who are major parts of the DC universe going forward. Like It just feels like this is a recipe for filmmakers to not want to work with Warner Brothers again. What's your response to this? I think there's some background that needs to be set up. And full disclosure, I am sort of casually friends with Dave Green, the guy who directed Coyote vs. Acme. He's very close with one of my close friends. I haven't talked to Dave directly in, like since before COVID. So, he did Earth you know, Dead, though, right? He did the live-action TMNT movie. Dave is a super nice guy. He's the most, like, the quietest, most unassuming, but very smart dude. Anyway, I think there's some background, which is that like the canceled Batgirl movie, Coyote vs. Acme was greenlit as a streaming movie. Its budget is, I think, under $100 million. And it's interesting in that we've seen two of those previously meant for streaming films killed off by the current Warner Brothers leadership. Whereas other studios are taking their made-for-streaming movies and in some cases putting them in theaters. <laughs> Such as Mean Girls, other titles like that. Yeah, so there's this weird disconnect where it's like, you know, is this big enough, quote unquote, for a movie theater? But I think by any metric, this is bizarre behavior. The test screenings were good. It's apparently a good film. You have a name like John Cena in it. Well, and more importantly, you have a name like Bugs Bunny in it. You know, it's like a studio like Warner Brothers 10, 20 years ago would have spent a million dollars to buy up scripts that were even vaguely like a movie that they had in production just to put them in a drawer so nobody else could do it. And now Warner Brothers is talking about licensing out distribution of a movie that features characters that are so integrated with Warner Brothers that they're part of the logo. It's weird. This it's is, so, I mean, I don't know. Like the, the rumor is like, Oh, Warner Brothers caved and they'll let someone else distribute the movie. I don't, I don't know if that's confirmed at this point, but like the fact that they would let another studio release a freaking even think Looney Tunes movie. I mean, nothing's nothing to me shows you how different this business is now than it was even a decade ago. This is one of those things that just tells you, okay, the people running this are making decisions in a completely different way. They have different aims. And frankly, their aims are kind of inscrutable beyond the fact that they seem to be trying to satisfy you know, a summation at the end of a spreadsheet. We got a little bit of insight from David Zaslav, CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery. On November 8th, they had their earnings call. And I wanted to just, just pluck out a few items here. Number one, it seemed like, you know, reading through the transcript, they're still putting, if not all their eggs, a lot of their eggs in the max basket. They're rolling that out across different markets going forward in the year. So it looks like that's still a really big priority. 
And then what I don't understand, they said uh, a lot of our most popular IP has been underused after potentially like shelving a Looney Tunes movie, which is just bizarre to me. And he says that going forward, we can go a better job of managing and maximizing the value of our blue chip franchises like Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, and Superman. Each represents an ecosystem of storytelling possibilities, and we intend to capitalize on their potential with a more focused franchise management approach. But there was a lot of talk in the earnings call about them being bullish on gaming, like uh, the Harry Potter legacy, you know, gaming spinoffs of these franchises. Sean, what do you think of their assessment that a lot of their popular IP has been underused? Because it feels like we've been seeing a lot of use of Harry Potter and, and the DC universe and how much blood is left in this stone, I guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would use underused, maybe misused. Yeah. <laughs> that seemed a better yeah. word to me. So yeah, I, I think Superman is is really the the prime example here because we've seen a couple of different versions of it over the last two decades, and we're going to see another one in 2025. I think Game of Thrones is is an interesting piece of the conversation just because one new spinoff series is already going forward. There are several that are rumored or in development, but not officially greenlit yet. And of course, Harry Potter is just being entirely rebooted for a streaming series. And the second Game of Thrones series is, I mean, that was streaming, right? So do we have really any, we don't have any numbers as to how well it, it did aside from whatever Warner Brothers Discovery wants to tell us. Yeah. And then the studio was, you know, at one point, the gold standard of, of their franchises. I mean, Warner Brothers had Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings running concurrently two decades ago. They had Nolan, which is was a franchise unto himself, even after The Dark Knight. Filmmakers take big swings within the framework of those franchises. And, and now, I don't know, Russ, what do you think of, of Warner Brothers' attitude towards uh, how it has treated its franchises and how it says it is going to treat its franchises going forward? Except for Looney Tunes, which apparently they don't care about. It's like their bedrock franchise. <laughs> well, and they've shown us uh, nearly a year ago what Looney Tunes meant to them when they pulled a bunch of the Looney Tunes content off of Max. Which is the only thing I watched on Max, honestly. like You know, it's one of those things where I'm like, come on. If you can't, like, it's part of your job to sell that, not to just passively put it in front of audiences and expect them to find it. And they haven't been good at it. To me, Superman, as Sean said, is indicative of the mishandling of some of the major IP. But so is Harry Potter. I mean, come on. The Fantastic Beasts movies are a mess. But recently, there was a quote from David Yates, the director, who said something about the fact that he didn't even know it was meant to be five films until J.K. Rowling said that like during a press conference at the premiere of the original movie or something. And it was that, like, wait, what? That is Disney-era Star Wars level disorganized in terms of franchise maintenance. I mean, Harry Potter is interesting in that you have, like, J.K. Rowling is the king, the queen, the empress of Harry Potter. And at this point, I don't know what you can do with Harry Potter without having her involved. And looking at J.K. Rowling as a figure from outside, she seems increasingly a little bit, let's say, difficult to deal with. Or controversial or unpredictable. Or, but how much does that extend outside of our bubble? 
Well, I mean, I don't. It doesn't matter if it extends outside of our bubble if you're trying to get those movies made, and if she's difficult to deal with from the perspective of getting those movies made, then yeah, it's a big problem. All I can say is that I've seen the movies, and they're bad, and the audience seems to feel the same money. way. They didn't make money. People didn't respond. They don't have life after theatrical. I mean, I'm sure they have some life after theatrical, but they have no cultural footprint. There, Nobody is clamoring for the next Fantastic Beasts movie. And that's a huge problem from Warner Brothers' perspective. People should be clamoring for that, and they're not. So, I mean, and if you, what if do you, you do have an interesting filmmaker who maybe has an interesting vision for that and want to take a swing at it, you know, who's going to say they could face the potentiality of their film getting shelved? Studio heads have made capricious, unpredictable, bizarre decisions for 100 years. They've been recutting movies since the teens and 20s. This has happened to some of the biggest filmmakers in the world. It's happened all of the time. That's part of the business. What's new is the like the wrinkle in us being able to see some of that stuff happening in real time and in the filmmakers having a louder voice in responding to it, which was not always the case in the past. I mean, when the Coyote versus Acne announcement came out, people were crew members were immediately posting, like, here's a reel of what we did. Here's a choir doing a... Like, it really got people stirred up. I definitely want to see that movie now. No question. And But the thing is, I mean, the underlying behavior is not entirely new. I think what is new, as I said before, is the idea of, like, selling off or licensing off some of your marquee property to a different company, that is new. That is not something we would have seen in the past. But, you know, I think answering your question about like, does the Coyote versus Acme News or does any of this other stuff make filmmakers less willing to work with Warner Brothers? Like, maybe a little bit, but in the end, probably not that much. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it does look like, you know, obviously through these earnings calls, we can see a perspective on some of these conversations that are taking place. Albeit, like, even when when you have these executives talking to investors, that is a very skewed conversation by its own right, because they are trying to present an image that maybe is different than the one that they're presenting to, like, fans. But just from this call with investors, it definitely looks like They are still really investing in Max and investing in Max globally. And then, yeah, the the gaming piece, they spent quite a long time on that. So, yeah, I mean, Warner Brothers, that's not even even the major story that we're talking about this week. The major story comes from uh, Disney, who also, over this past week, had their earnings call and some accompanying announcements that uh, really, I, I think, along with the opening week performance, or lack thereof, of the Marvels, gives us a, a lot to talk about. But before we dig into the state of the MCU, past, present, and future, let's go over box office really quick. This this past week and also the week on the way, just so maybe people who are not interested in whatever a Thunderbolt is can get that box office update. Yeah, at number one, Captain Marvel. By far the worst opening that the MCU has had with an estimated $47 million. That is worse than Black Widow and Elementals, which obviously came out day and day during the pandemic. It's worse than The Incredible Hulk, which was kind of always the baseline for like, it wasn't even really the MCU yet. It was just 
a movie. It did 15% below that. Globally, it opened 75% below Captain Marvel, which eventually became a billion-dollar film. It looks like this one is not. It was 86%. This one was 86% below what Captain Marvel made in China. And China was the highest overseas international market. <laughs> so yeah, not not good. We're gonna we're gonna talk about what this means or does not mean for the MCU, for Disney, and for the, the comic book movie scene as a whole later on. But in number two, Five Nights at Freddy's fell 53% in its third weekend to second place with nine million. Taylor Swift's Eras tour in third. Shawnee was saying she was initially supposed to be last week, the fourth week would be the last one. That was not the case. Taylor Swift came back into theaters and and fell 57% in the fifth week to third place with just under 6 million. Sean, is it still going to be in theaters next weekend or do we not, do we not know? From what we're hearing, it's going to be in theaters indefinitely until it's not. That's, so that's the only answer I've been able to get. In theaters the same time as Beyonce, AMC will have two, uh, Potentially, two really big. Yeah. But I, I mean, as you mentioned, it fell 57% against the Marvels. I imagine it will have a pretty similar decline against the Hunger Games. It'll and then peter out. We'll see what AMC and Variants decide to do at that point. And then closing out the top five, we have uh, from A24, Priscilla, which is in its second week of wide release. It only dropped 5%, but it also added like a thousand screens. So that's a, that's a pretty big jump in screen count. It did get 4.7 million. And then Killers of the Flower Moon in fifth place, which guys, I finally saw it. I got out to see it on the big screen. It took me four weeks. That one dropped 32% to 4.6 million. Right now, it's just under 60 million at this point domestic. Also out in limited release from A24, Dream Scenario with Nicolas Cage. It's something I'm really looking forward to. And it just had like a really, really good per theater average on six screens. So that one, it seems like maybe it's, I can't see them opening it super, super wide, but it's definitely one that, that I'm excited for. Now, next weekend, before we get into, into the Marvel of it all, we have a lot of films coming out and I'm just going to rattle through what we have prediction wise. And then Sean ask you for some comments here from Eli Roth, the horror film Thanksgiving, our last forecasting, uh, we had it opening to 10 to 15 million domestic topping out at 22 to 40 from universal trolls band together. We have opening at 21 to 31 million with a domestic eventual total of 68 to 113 million. Uh, as we talked about last week on the podcast, it's already, it's been coming out in uh, a lot of international markets since mid October. So internationally, it's already sitting on a gross of uh, 58.8 million. Third, the hunger games, the ballad of songbirds and snakes, the hunger games, people from Lionsgate. We have that opening at 35 to 45 domestic domestic 90 to 142 million and then finally from searchlight disney taiko atd's next goal wins smaller film we have that opening from four to nine million topping out domestic between 12.8 and 31.5 million sean have any of those assessments changed for you or is that, are you still feeling like those are pretty good ranges for those four films i think at this point most of them are Fairly concrete. I, I, I'm sure if a couple will be flexible here in the next few days as as forecasts are finalized. I would probably say I, I'm leaning lower on Thanksgiving at the moment, but horror films, especially 
original horror films are often the most tricky because they're very late burns. And you don't have a lot of Thanksgiving horror comps to... <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, that too. And horror just doesn't typically do that great after Halloween, uh, with very few exceptions. So there's that. I think Taika Waititi is doing a little bit more promo now and probably Fastbender, especially with the actor strike ending. So that might help next, next goal wins, but I'm also feeling a little more cautious on that one. I, I think four to nine, that window is probably going to shrink on the lower side. Trolls and Hunger Games, that's really the interesting one. They're both, you know, I think going to maybe cannibalize each other to a certain degree. Not significantly. I think Trolls obviously plays more to kids. Hunger Games is a little bit more to adults, but they share a, a, a pretty strong female audience. And that will be interesting to see how that plays out, especially given where each franchise is at. But I think in general, most of those ranges, I, I don't anticipate changing too much. I am feeling a little bit more confident about Trolls, but it had really good early access showings a few weeks ago. We'll see how those translate to the actual opening weekend. Okay. Yeah. So uh, hopefully these uh, these films will be able to benefit at least a little bit from the strike ending. You know, they get at least like, what, a week and a half to get Justin Timberlake out there and Anna Kendrick out there and all, all those and, and uh, try to drum up some of that marketing. Yeah, it's going to be a crowded, it's definitely going to be a crowded one uh, this this weekend. So excited to see what comes out on top versus Hunger Games and uh, Trolls Band Together. And now, drumroll, the main feature. We knew going into the Marvel's opening weekend that there was a very large chance that it would be the lowest opening weekend of the MCU. And we also have had some schedule changes, namely the third Deadpool movie uh, previously on May 24 is now July 24, Captain America Brave New World. Thunderbolts have both moved from 2024 to 2025. We have Blade, which I think has been delayed 18 bazillion times, previously coming out Valentine's Day of 2025, now coming out November of 2025. And then some other, uh, you know, their uh, Mufasa Lion King movie moved from 2024, July to December. We've had uh, some untitled Disney moved from uh, removed from the schedule. But the big headline here, of course, is that in 2024, we're only going to have one movie from Marvel, that being Deadpool 3, and one movie from DC, that being Joker Fori Adu, both kind of Offshoots, quirkier, smaller, not the huge spectacle looking type stuff. And Sony has a couple of things. I mean, Venom 3, I think, is still 24. And Madam Web is currently scheduled for Valentine's Day weekend, although we've seen literally nothing from that movie. Yeah, I expect that one to move. If Madam Web opens in February, I'll be shocked. They also have Craven as well. Oh, and Craven, right. Yep, yep, yep. I think there's the undated third Spider-Verse film, but at this point I can't see that movie coming before 2025. No, they. I mean, they were still working on the second one like well, after it had come out. So they're, they're working up against the clock. All right, so I guess we've. what does the overall MCU lineup look like now? The first one we're going to be getting is now Captain America early 2025, the one with Anthony Mackie, right? There was recent word of reshoots coming for Brave New World for the Captain America movie. And of course, you know, Marvel will be quickly quick to say that reshoots are always part of their strategy, and it's true. But test scores on early screenings of that movie were supposedly pretty bad. You know, all of this is to be taken with a grain of salt. It's anecdotal. We don't have any hard and fast reporting on that. 
But I think the bigger question is just how strongly is Marvel continuing on the course that they had planned two years ago? Are they reworking any of these movies? The Jonathan Majors question is big. The actor is facing a number of legal troubles, and he is meant to be you know, the new Thanos. You know, there are two Avengers movies that are <laughs> structured around his character, or at least one, you know, his, you know, Kang is in the title of the next Avengers movie. Is the MCU dead? Like, I know it's not, no. but what's the reality yeah. here? I mean, to me, I think there are very clear concerns we, we definitely have to address. We have addressed and we will continue to address with the MCU. But I think it's also very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction to the state of comic book movies in general just over the marvels to me i mean we could write a book about this honestly but it proves the abject failure of their streaming strategy a lot of people were turned off i think by essentially a couple of characters that you really had to watch the marvel streaming series to at least be introduced to and they were a big part of the presence of the sequel it was not Captain Marvel's sequel. It was a sequel with Captain Marvel and two other characters that not a lot of people had heard of. And this came at a time during a year when one other film, at least, disappointed a lot of audiences, that being Quantumania. And their streaming series have very largely pushed away audiences, the only exceptions being WandaVision and Loki. Those, I think, really are kind of the only two that I think have really generated a lot of positive sentiment. So the Marvels kind of, I think, represented a lot of things coming to a head on that end. Like the transition out of the original yeah. Avengers, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, like, okay, the sunsetting of that team, and then we have the next generation, feels like people just don't want that as much. <laughs> you know, it's tough. That's absolutely part of it, too. I, I I always kind of expected this to be a rebuilding phase. I mean, it's just like a sports analogy. Once you've a team has won the championship, they lose their biggest free agents, the organization has to rebuild. Uh, Marvel was going to have to go through this in some way, but they couldn't predict COVID. They couldn't predict the Jonathan Major situation. And they really probably, I don't know if they would have predicted the streaming conundrum that, that Disney put them in the position of probably when they were really starting to think about these plans for post end game, which, you know, knowing Kevin Feige and, and how he tends to operate, he's probably been thinking about where they are now for close to seven or eight years, if not longer. So that's, that's a lot of work. And I think a lot of preparation that, that can't just be undone or, or of course corrected overnight. I mean, I think the sports analogy and the rebuilding is a very good one. The problem is that they've been rebuilding for four years now. And as you say, COVID, nobody could have predicted that. You know, that took them down for, that put the entire team on the injured list for 18 months easily. <laughs> right. I think there's reason to question if they're still rebuilding or what exactly is going on. You know, we, there have been a whole series of movies that, haven't landed as strongly with audiences as they need to. And this is across different franchises. I mean, this is Pixar as well. This is not only an MCU situation. No question. And Disney's strategy, it's interesting that we have, on one hand, Zaslav saying that they have underutilized their core IP, whereas on the other side, Disney, Bob Iger has explicitly recognized that they have overutilized some of their core IP and that they need to pull back. So what's the middle ground? Both of these companies need to find it. You know, Disney and Marvel absolutely have to. They're, you know, that overextension has also meant that their quality has suffered because they're, you know, their in-house effects teams and the effects teams that they're taking stuff out to externally haven't been able to do the work as well as they would like to. Marvel's decision-making process is a very last-minute thing. You look at a movie like Guardians 3, 
which I think is the best movie Marvel has put out in a while. And that comes from James Gunn. It comes from someone who planned that movie rigorously. It's easy to, to look at, you don't look at Guardians and think, wow, I bet they changed a bunch of this stuff last minute. And they probably didn't. Whereas every other movie Marvel has put out in the last two years feels like it was tinkered with down to the wire. I'm looking at their earnings call. We do have from Disney Iger, granted, again, this is something that he's saying to investors, but really talking about how, uh, quote, in the four years since we lost Disney Plus, which generated roughly 10 million signups in the first 24 hours alone, core Disney Plus subscribers have now reached over 112 million as of the end of fiscal 23. They really touted their ad-supported Disney Plus products growing by approximately 2 million subscribers in Q4 to a total of 5.2 million. So they're still focusing on growing the streaming platform. Doesn't seem quite as centered on it, maybe, as Warner Brothers does with Max. But Russ, what's the Disney plus Hulu merger thing that is happening? Because I think that's something that deserves a mention as well, as it kind of reflects on what Disney's priorities are in regards to streaming. Yeah, it's, I mean, we don't have a full strategy laid out for what they're going to do with it in the U.S. You know, and outside the U.S., their Disney Plus sometimes looks a little bit different and they have their star platform, which kind of bridges the pure Disney fare with the more adult stuff that is on Hulu in the U.S. But they haven't even figured out entirely how that structure is going to work, to the best of my knowledge. And details haven't been made public unless I've missed something over the last few days. You know, it certainly seems unlikely that uh, movies like Prey, you know, some of the Fox stuff that has been going direct to Hulu, I don't think is ever going to end up on Disney Plus. So it seems likely that they're going to keep Hulu in some form, whether it will stay Hulu or if it'll be rebranded to Star or something to keep it consistent across territories remains to be seen. So, Sean, to wrap this up, I mean, what does this mean for theaters with regards to the 2020 floor slate? How big of a blow is it? Does this leave any massive holes in the calendar? And what are exhibitors going to be looking to to maybe fill in some of the fill in some of the gaps in the ticket sales that these delayed MCU films would have earned? I mean, no question. Losing whether or not Marvel is at their peak or on very rough ground as they are at the moment, losing a Marvel movie is, is never a good thing yeah, for they're theaters. They're still especially. reliable earners. Like. Right. Yeah. And you know they, they, they didn't really have another movie that looked like it could open quite as low as, as the Marvels. I think Captain America is in a very interesting situation. Thunderbolts is a little bit of a different conversation. I, I think that does somewhat rely on some of those streaming series that we talked about. And I kind of wonder if they rethink that film. They should a rename bit. it just, because you just look at it and if you don't know, you have no idea <laughs> right. it's a Marvel film. Yeah. But the good news is they still have Deadpool and it, it only effectively is delayed two months to, to late July. So that's good news. We mentioned that first weekend of May, which has really historically been the Marvel weekend, whether it was under Disney or, or Sony or Fox going back to the old school Spider-Man and, and X-Men days, that first weekend of May, virtually every year for the past two decades, with rare exception, has seen a Marvel movie open, and it won't. So what takes that spot now, do you think? I honestly don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, somebody will take it, I would imagine. Uh, you know, this isn't like 2021 when reopenings kind of prevented your traditional 
calendar. Somebody will will, will jump Some in there. Some studios like rubbing their hands together, like yeah, we right. get to open. We get to yeah. open the summer movie season. I mean, honestly, Russ touched on it. I don't think it's going to happen. But if Spider Verse were able to be in the position to be close enough to finish t- in production, that would be a great choice. But oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. they would really have to have made a lot more progress on the film than any of us are aware of at this point. So. We'll see what happens, but absolutely next year is going to be very challenging. And the hope is maybe some of these original films or or new franchises are born. Maybe something like The Fall Guy can really break out. We certainly saw that with Barbie and Oppenheimer and, and Mario this year. So we're past the point of just assuming comic movies are going to carry the industry. Something can 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 surprise. That's that's going to have to happen next year. It's lead to some uh, some innovation. Yeah, exactly. Well, Sean and Russ, thank you so much for joining us this week to posit answers to a lot of questions that has have no answers now that are that are very up in the air. But I, I do think uh, you know the sky is not falling at this point. All right, thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks once again to Russ and Sean and our producer Chad Kenner. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro box office company and record edit podcast tune in next thursday for more updates on the cinema business thank you and goodbye